Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. The NDP is calling on Premier Doug Ford to create a plan to roll out COVID-19 vaccine for kids aged 5 to 11. Ontario's QR code Vaxport app is out, but a think tank is calling on the province to dump the whole thing. The CFL commissioner joins us to discuss the Grey Cup in Hamilton this year and in 2023. Hamilton Bulldogs president and GM Steve Steos previews a big weekend for the team. A Toronto company isn't looking back after implementing a four-day work week. And have you ever seen a UFO? The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's NDP leader Andrew Horvath is calling on Premier Doug Ford to create and promote a plan to roll out vaccination for kids between the ages of 5 and 11 before Health Canada approves that particular shot. Joining us now is Ms. Horvath. Good morning, Andrea. How are you today? Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad. Welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. We know that some public health units are working on this sort of plan. Why haven't we seen anything from the Ford government? Because in typical fashion, this Ford government is always uh, on its back foot. They never get ahead of the curve on uh, the COVID-19 pandemic response. They're always late. Uh, They're always dragging their feet. Uh, and, and it's frustrating for folks. People just want to know what they can do to, you know, to, to be part of the solution. And, and Doug Ford, unfortunately, uh, doesn't ever seem to be uh, ahead of the game here. So that's why we're, we're just trying to prod the government. People have been through so much, and we have done so much to, uh, to fight against this, uh, against this virus. And, and, you know, we're doing well. But but let's face it, there's another phase that's coming, and, and we all know it's coming. So why not, you know, give parents some certainty? Uh, let uh, school boards and and doctors and you know pharmacists and and everybody a sense of how they can help ensure that we get those young ones vaccinated quickly, seamlessly, with as little stress and anxiety as possible. Because particularly, we know that little ones feel that stress, and we should be protecting them from that as well. The uh, QR code app comes out today for uh, the uh, COVID-19 vaccine certificate program. Your thoughts on the app, and do you plan to download it? Uh, I certainly will, um, and I encourage people that can to do so. Um, it's uh, it's it's just the it's the easiest way for businesses, for example, who are um, you know who are having to look for uh, people's uh, uh, certificates. Uh, it, it's easy for, easier for them. So uh, I, I think it just it just creates an opportunity to uh, you know to once again step it up and uh, and and you know bring as much um, you know as much. Uh, ease to this uh, these these next number of months as possible because particularly businesses have been through hell and back we've lost a lot of businesses and we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make it easier for them having said that i'm i'm just i'm still uber disappointed in the uh, the length of time it's taken for us to get to this point we know other provinces got their uh, their um, you know their qr code apps out some time ago so as we know doug ford stubbornly didn't want to do it uh, because he didn't want to offend his, uh, you know, his anti, anti-vaxxer crowd that, uh, that are supporters of his, and that was the wrong decision. 
So, um, you know, we're waiting. It, it's, it's far too late, but it's better late than never. Our guest this morning on Good Morning Hamilton is Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath, also the MPP for Hamilton Centre. Um, regarding the QR code vaccine certificate app, should there be a timeline? I know the Premier said this is going to be temporary. What should that timeline be or what should an end date be to this? Well, I think it's it, it's going to depend on the um, on the trajectory of the of the virus. If we get through this winter uh, in in good uh, in good shape, and uh, we have continue to have strong, um, you know, rules or 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 uh, frameworks as to how we prevent this uh, virus from. Um, you know, from morphing again, and what I'm hearing from the doctors is the high vaccination rate will help us uh, to avoid that, uh, then we can start looking at dismantling it. But I don't think that decision comes until, you know, until we've been indoors all summer, or rather all winter long, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and can assess uh, where we're at as a population. Uh, capacity limits at places like Scotiabank Arena, Tim Hortons Field in Hamilton, First Ontario Centre in downtown Hamilton uh, are now at 100%. That's not the case for restaurants, gyms, nightclubs. Should it be and when will it be? Well, I think we're going to hear more about that today from the uh, the Premier's office. But i got to say, I don't get why this Premier and this government don't know how to communicate to the public. I don't understand how they can be so out of touch uh, to create the kind of anger and frustration, and rightfully so, uh, that occurred last Friday when, when out, of, uh, out of nowhere the government quietly made an announcement about these big fish, about the, you know, about the, the top-notch uh, huge uh, venues and left the, you know, the small guys to uh, wither on the vine for another week. I mean, it's just, uh, it, uh, you know, if, it, if that decision had to be made, then, then be upfront about it. Be upfront about it and back up that decision uh, with evidence, so, you know, with the, the, the facts about why it had to be made, and then communicate to people so that they understand. And none of that happened. And, uh, and, and you know, here we are. You know, we're 18 months, more than 18 months into the, uh, you know, the, uh, the life with this virus, and Doug Ford still doesn't get it. It's, it's shocking, uh, and we deserve better than that, because what happens is everyday people are the ones uh, that suffer. The small businesses, the mom and pops, the Main Street uh, folks are the ones that, you know, that have to then, you know, continue to, to suffer, uh, continue to try to you know, f- make it work uh, as, uh, as their government just kind of turns their back on them. Andrea, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time, and enjoy the weekend. Thank you so much. You do the same. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Think Tank Cardis has uh, written an open letter, or at least an individual has written an open letter to Premier Doug Ford saying the Ontario government must set a firm end date for vaccine passports in this province and transition to new, more effective policy for handling the later stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's bring in our next guest. Brian Dykema is the Vice President of External Affairs at Cardis and joins us now. Brian, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So you are challenging the Premier over vaccine passports, saying they are, quote, unjustified, unnecessary, and a harmful overreach with serious short- and long-term consequences. Tell about tell us about your open letter. Yeah, well, we think that the, uh, the Premier, who said in August or July, sorry, that there were going to be no passports, and he quickly switched, doesn't have the evidence uh, for this uh, and is not uh, paying full enough attention to the way in which passports 
um, disproportionately affect marginalized communities in particular and margin like actually reduces the trust that we need at the time of a global pandemic. They don't work. The evidence isn't there for them and the harm is real. And I think we need to start talking about that as a community. Well, let's nail on a couple of key aspects of this letter. And let's start with the marginalized Ontarians. Um, how does the vaccine passport affect them? Well, here's the thing. We know that vaccine hesitancy is greatest among black, Métis, Canadians and immigrants. So that comes from Stats Canada. We're not making that up. There's a 20 point gap between black Canadians and others when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. And that vaccine hesitancy comes from a real a real place. You know, you know, the science table itself has noted that vaccine lower vaccine confidence is associated with a complex set of factors, including health inequities, barriers to accessing healthcare and mistrust in the government and healthcare institutions. And we have to ask ourselves, are vaccine passports going to address that? And the answer is, when you look at it, the answer is no. What, what is happening, sadly, is that when you introduce these passports for things like restaurants or indoor you know, rec facilities and so on, what's really happening is that those things become available to the vast majority of white and affluent Ontarians who are, who are uh, vaccinated, while people who have darker colored skin, who are poor, or who are recent immigrants, they're excluded. And what's extremely, extremely concerning is that they're excluded other than to cook, serve, and clean. And that's precisely the type of structural discrimination that we should be avoiding these days. And what is going on with this is it's actually this exact structural discrimination that's being furthered by policies of this sort. Your open letter also points to uh, evidence or suggestions from uh, Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table in terms of uh, vaccination rates and uh, whether or not these passports are affecting the transmission of the virus. Um, do you want to uh, clarify your thoughts on those two issues? Right. So everybody thinks, and there's been this narrative, that vaccine passports are actually increasing uh, vaccination rates. And when you look at the actual numbers, it's not true. There's been a general trend of vaccine rates, um, which, you know, has been going down slowly over time as more and more people get them, of course. But that trend has largely been unaffected by the passports. When you look at the numbers, you see a very small bump uh, on the day, the week of, of the announcement. You saw a bunch of people getting their first. But that bump immediately went down to the trend line again and perhaps even lower. So the question is, they're not working. The, the trend was happening. The trend was going. We are getting people vaxxed. We're at 83% right now, fully vaxxed, another 5% uh, with their first dose. So we're almost at 90%. And that trend was happening already. And the question is, why did we need this when they themselves say that they don't know if they actually work? The, the Canadian uh, public health authorities say the effects of these remain to be seen. I think it's not driven by science. I think the numbers show that it's not driven by empirical quantitative evidence. And I think that the, the downsides, which are, which are very clear, outweigh the benefits, which, which are totally unclear and, in fact, don't seem to be present at all. Our guest is Brian Dykema. He's a vice president of external affairs at Think Tank Cardis. He's written an open letter to Premier Doug Ford saying the province must set a firm end date for vaccine passports. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The QR code system is coming up next. Is this going to make matters worse? Well, it's a massive investment in something that we shouldn't have done. We should have been investing in the things that actually get people to get their, their, uh, their vaccines. And what works, as we know, and as the province itself knows, is community-based public health work. If you go to a place where, like West Africa, for instance, where they actually know how to get into communities and do public health, you need to be connecting with the communities where the hesitancy is placed. That's where the money should be going. It shouldn't be going into a massive QR system, which, quite frankly, there's concerns about privacy as well that we've noted. 
Um, what we should be doing is doing community-based public health work to get that out there, to get more people to have the vaccines. And Rick, I just want to be very clear that we're pro-vaccine. Our, our think tank very early on in this uh, wrote a, uh, a paper encouraging the government to incentivize vaccines and incentivize vaccines in such a way that would build community solidarity. And what we're seeing with these vaccine passports is that we're diminishing so social solidarity at a time when we need it most and we're increasing division. And that's not good policy and it's not good public health. And one of the steps that you uh, would like the premier and the province to uh, initiate uh, or implement would be the widespread use of rapid tests as opposed to a vaccine passport. Right. I mean, that's one way that it's been available to us for a long time. We can actually know, we can actually trace where this is going on and where and people can become aware right early on. That's one thing that I think the government needs to do. I think the key thing, as I've noticed, uh, said earlier, that we need to double down on community-based relational health care. That's just best practices. They know it, uh, and we need to do more on that. The government needs to communicate better. I think what has happened is that government has put out a variety of policies without the evidence supporting it. And I think what's happening is over time, Ontarians are beginning to wonder whether or not these things work. And what has ended up happening is we're eroding the trust in the government when we need it. But I think there's one, one other thing that I think we need to do that's a little bit longer term and a little bit more structural, uh, Rick, is that we need to invest in our hospitals. This is one thing that, you know, many of us uh, were aware of this beforehand, but even before the pandemic happening, in hospitals in Brampton, for instance, or in other places, we were already full. The ICUs were full. They were almost at capacity in many, many cases. The ships that are our hospitals were in terrible disrepair. And it's time for us to stop, stop looking at things that aren't going to work. Vaccine passports are one of them. Stop investing time and energy into that and start investing in rebuilding the structural public health system that will actually help keep our communities safe and build public, you know, public trust in the government. Brian, you bring up a lot of uh, great and interesting points, some things for our listeners to chew on and think about and debate uh, while around the kitchen table. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. That is Brian Dykema, VP of External Affairs at Think Tank Cardis. It also brings us to our Twitter poll question today at AM900CHML. Will you download Ontario's COVID-19 vaccine certificate QR code app? Yes or no? You can vote now at AM900CHML. Coming up after the news, are Canadians ready to travel now that the U.S. border is going to be reopening next month? That's coming up next here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900CHML. News dropped yesterday from the Canadian Football League and a couple of big items were released. Number one, final details, or at least more details on what is coming up for this year's Grey Cup in Hamilton. And the city and the Tiger Cats have been awarded the Grey Cup in 2023. So we haven't had the Grey Cup in 25 years, and now we're going to get two in the next three years. It's pretty exciting news. Here to share the news is the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, Randy Ambrosi. Randy, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. How are you today? Fine. Yourself? Well, Rick, I'm good because I was told that if I'm not a morning person, I'm going to be after I get off the call with you, so I'm pretty excited. <laughs> Why Hamilton again in 2023? Well, you know, we are, uh, we're obviously all battling through the, you know, the last remnants. Uh, we hope the last remnants of this COVID craziness. And, uh, you know, we've been calling audibles all the way along as it related to how we would stage this great cup. Obviously, a big focus on a 
huge game and and uh, taking advantage of beautiful Tim Hortons Field and all that Hamilton has to offer. Uh, you know, it's not going to be as robust as we would have originally planned, and and the Thai Cats bid on a very robust Grey Cup, and the governors decided that. Uh, you know, while it's going to be great and we're going to welcome all of Canada and the world to come to Hamilton, enjoy the, you know, all that Hamilton has to offer, there was a feeling that Hamilton wouldn't get to put on as big a show as they had hoped for. And the governors uh, felt strongly that uh, Hamilton should get that opportunity. So they were awarded the 23 game. And I'm excited for the 21 Great Cup. I think Hamilton will do a, an amazing job and then they'll get the chance to do the whole thing that they had planned for in 2023. As we know, hosting a Grey Cup is a huge financial boon to the host team. Uh, how much of a factor was that in allowing Hamilton to capitalize financially in a couple of years' time? Well, you know, I don't. this wasn't as much about finances as it was about the opportunity to fulfill a promise. And, uh, you know, Bob, for starting with Bob Young, Scott Mitchell, Matt Affleck, they all uh, had come together to put a bid in front of the league uh, that was going to, you know, it was an amazing uh, collection of events and, and, and taking advantage of all that Hamilton had to offer. And uh, the feeling was that that promise of that the Grey Cup was, was really intriguing. And, uh, and frankly, the opportunity for Hamilton to showcase, you know, all that it has become in these last many years, uh, it was really more about uh, that opportunity to, to really deliver what Hamilton had originally, the Titans had originally bid on. We're chatting with CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Should mention that this year's Grey Cup is going to be played later than any other CFL final. You have to go back to uh, all the way back to 1937 uh, when the game was held on December the 11th. It was the 25th Grey Cup, and the Argos beat the Blue Bombers 4-3 in what must have been a barn burner at Varsity Stadium in front of 11,522 fans. There's going to be more fans than that at Tim Morton's Field, but there's not going to be temporary seating for this year's Grey Cup. Why that decision? You know, again, the problem with so much of large event planning, uh, Rick, is that you need a long lead time to get uh, all the pieces in place. And as you know, you know we're, we're only several days past the announcement from the province that they were going to allow us to go to full capacity. And by the way, we support... Uh, what the province has been doing to try to keep us all safe. But uh, it just hasn't left us with a lot of time to do all the necessary logistical planning. And the last thing you want to be doing is trying to rush, uh, you know, getting temporary seats in. So we just, what, again, the governor's focused on, let's fill Tim Hortons to the, you know, to the to the brim. Let's have a great, great cup with the, uh, the maximum capacity that the existing stadium provides and not put unnecessary pressure on them to now with so like the literally only 60 days left to go to try to organize temporary seating that, uh, you know, a week ago wouldn't have been necessary uh, because it wasn't allowed. And uh, so again, it's all about event planning and logistics and what the governors wanted is to give Hamilton a chance to execute perfectly on the existing capacity, which we know they will. And then uh, we'll be back in 23 uh, in Hamilton, letting them put on a uh, the, the big show. One more question for CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi. Um, will we see a somewhat normal Grey Cup festival this year? Well, I think the festival is, so it's, there's certainly going to be a festival. 
Uh, again, we're calling audibles, Rick. Uh, you know, we're making adjustments where public safety, uh, of course, is paramount to us. We want to make sure that we are, you know, following all the rules that the province has in place. So it's going to be a little different than what was originally planned. We're actually expecting, quite honestly, we're expecting uh, a lot of organic rate come to as you know, uh, Rick, the city has had this amazing renaissance. The restaurant industry has descended on Hamilton, and there are some of the most amazing places for nightlife and food and, and entertainment. We're, we're actually going to really rely on Hamilton's ability to serve as a host. And so it's going to be a bit of a hybrid from what we had originally planned. Uh, we, I think, again, the word organic it keeps coming up. But uh, having been in and out of Hamilton many, many times myself in the last couple of years, I know Hamiltonians will do a world-class job, and it'll be a great, great cup in every respect. It'll be a little different than normal, but I think it's going to—I think it's going to put on a great show and make Hamilton proud. Yes, we are very much looking forward to it, Mr. Ambrosi. Thanks for the time today. Enjoy the weekend. Rick, all the best to you and, and all your listeners. Take care. Thank you very much. Randy Ambrosi, CFL Commissioner, joining us here. More details on this year's Grey Cup in Hamilton, including the pregame and the halftime show performances, are going to be announced too soon. Tickets are going to go on sale next week for season ticket holders across the league, followed by the sale to the general public. That'll start October 26th. If you're a Tiger Cat season ticket holder, you've already had access to Grey Cup tickets, so scoop them up now while you can. i got to mention this because Ron Foxcroft is one of the most uh, humble, genuine men on the planet. He just emailed me saying, Z, Randy forgot to mention, uh, alluding to the interview we did with Randy Ambrosi, the commissioner of the CFL, Randy forgot to mention that Fox and Randy are undefeated on the golf course for four years. So Fox and Ambrosi are like UCLA on the basketball court, only they're doing it on the golf course. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Now to the point, Grushnikov, lots of time. He scores! Welcome to Hamilton, Artem Grushnikov! His first OHL goal is a game winner! The Bulldogs complete the comeback! It's a 5-4 overtime thriller! That is the voice of Reed Duffy in the Bulldogs Audio Network last Saturday night as the Dogs rallied from a 4-1 deficit in the third period to beat the Barry Colts 5-4 in overtime, improving Hamilton's record to 2-0 in the Ontario Hockey League. Joining us now for a weekly Bulldogs chat is the president and GM of the Dogs, Steve Steo. Steve, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Yeah, good morning, Rick. Great start to the season. Two games, two victories. How would you uh, summarize your two wins? Uh, extremely exciting. <laughs> no doubt. I think uh, I think we're all grateful to be back here at First Ontario Centre and to be able to entertain our fans. I think uh, from an ent- entertainment standpoint, it was an incredible game. You know, we were coming off of a back-to-back, and uh, Barry hadn't played the night before. And I, as I was watching the game, Rick, I... I wasn't making excuses for our group, but you could tell that, uh, you know, uh, we just weren't executing at the rate that we typically do. Um, I know it's early in the season, but, um, and then uh, just the sheer will and determination and character of our group. And uh, to come back in that game, and uh, it was incredible. So that's three games in a row. In fact, going back to our last preseason game against London, where we've come back, I mean, if we can find a way to, 
you know, get out to a lead, uh, that would that'd be a little bit easier on the general manager's uh, uh, heart rate and stress level. But uh, nevertheless, it was a very proud moment for our group and a, an exciting moment here at First Ontario Centre for our fans. That uh, game at uh, First Ontario Centre was the first to be played with uh, increased capacity limits. Now 100% capacity is allowed at the downtown arena. What was that like to have fans back in the stands and to be playing in front of a crowd? Because you weren't able to do that, at least to that extent, during the preseason. Yeah, it was incredible, really. I mean, we have such a great fan base here, a passionate, uh, passionate group. Uh, you know, it was just nice to have our group in front of them. Uh, and uh, I know our guys fed off the energy, um, had a chance to meet with some of our fans on the way out. And again, I think we're all grateful to be able to get back out. And, uh, and uh, you know, but uh, just the energy in the building, it just changes everything, really. You know, you hear uh, even National Hockey League players talking about when they were in the bubble compared to now. And um, just changes the dynamics of the game, and certainly the energy was at, at a very high level for our fans, and a uh, really entertaining game for for our first one coming back. How would you describe the 2021-22 Bulldogs? What kind of team will fans see this year? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we we love our depth. Uh, I, I couldn't be more proud of the the character of the group. Um, you know, to be able to come back the way that we do, um, you know, just shows the resilience of, of our young men. Um, just a really, really good group of of, uh, of young student athletes, and uh, um, we have a lot of depth. We really like our, you know, our, the depth of our group. I mean, we have uh, it's a handful up the middle to contest contest with us with Meshack and Morrison and Shirk uh, as our as our, our centermen, um, and it's the most depth that we've had uh, at the defense position starting the season. You know, and. In 18, we made a couple of trades to bring in some veteran players, but as far as depth to start the season off here, uh, we have great depth and, and solid goaltending. So, um, yeah, it'll remain to be seen how we continue to develop and evolve as a group, Rick, but uh, uh, really proud of our depth. We feel like we can play four lines and six defensemen and any one of our goaltenders at any time. Our guest is Steve Steos. He is the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The Dogs entertain Niagara tonight at 7 o'clock at First Ontario Centre. The rematch will go tomorrow at 7 uh, at the Meridian Centre as the Bulldogs and Ice Dogs play a home and home. We're also broadcasting live on CHML's Facebook page. You can uh, tune in to the program there as well. Uh, you have a new co- head coach behind the bench in Jay McKee, and uh, a longtime NHL veteran who's now applying his trade as a coach. What is his influence on this team going to be like? Oh, he's he's a pro, really. I mean, his details, attention to detail is incredible. Uh, his plan for this group on uh, how we progress has been uh, uh, very dialed in right from the beginning. He's got a great uh, deal of experience at this level. Um, he has presence. He has uh, compassion. He's got uh, great communication skills. Uh, and uh, we're we're really proud to be able to have Jay here. Um, you know, the NHL experience is one thing, and even Jay would talk to it. I mean, it doesn't make you a great coach. So there's a lot that he's learned through his time as an assistant coach in our league associate coach and then as a head coach. And, then, and uh, you know, um, uh, he's been very diligent on the details with our group, and uh, there seems to be great buy-in from our players. We heard recently that uh, First Ontario Centre is going to undergo a major renovation, so much so that millions more dollars are going to be added to the equation with uh, Tim Laiwiki and his Oakview group uh, from uh, the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. Uh, how exciting is that, knowing that this you know, centre that uh, is home to the Bulldogs is going to go through a massive remodeling job? Yeah, I mean it's exciting uh, to to envision the the uh, you know the idea of that that happening. I know that uh, you know Michael Landlauer has been 
you know, uh, very, very uh, passionate about, uh, you know, making this right for, for our fans. And, uh, you know, can, that status quo wasn't going to be uh, good enough kind of moving forward. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, again, I think we're focused on, on the season and on the team and on our program here and, uh, you know, uh, hoping that things continue to move in the right direction. Steve, always appreciate the time. Good luck tonight. And, of course, throughout the season, I'm sure we'll chat with you down the road on these uh, Bulldogs updates uh, weekdays or uh, Friday mornings at uh, 849. I appreciate it, Rick. See you tonight. You got it. Steve Steos, president and GM of the Hamilton Bulldogs, says uh, the dogs get set to take on the Niagara Ice Dogs tonight at First Ontario Centre. Should also mention, speaking of sports, McMaster's football team is hosting Laurier tomorrow afternoon. Kickoff is at 1 p.m. at Ron Joy Stadium. You can join Ted Michaels and Miles Gorell. They will have the call of that football game live on 900 CHML. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Interesting story uh, out of Toronto where the founder of a company there that tested a four-day work week for her employees says she is never going to go back to working a full week. Why would you? Working four days instead of five? Where do I sign up? Uh, Jamie Savage is her name. She's the founder of the Leadership Agency, and she joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad yourself. Doing well, thank you. So where or when and why did you decide to do this? Yeah, I we decided to do this. Uh, we actually, two days before we launched it, which was October 1st, 2020, I said to my business partner and co-founder and COO, I said, you know, we need to make a change. Uh, we're all overworked and overwhelmed and stressed out. And as we all know, we were universally, you know, impacted by what was going on, you know, from childcare to working from home all of a sudden. And we felt it in our team that people were, like I said, overwhelmed and, and really stressed. And I said, you know, we need to make a change. And I think this is what we should do. Um, so I said to, like I said, my business partner, I said, let's go down to a four day work week and, and see what happens. And she said, okay, leave it with me. I'll make this happen. And then two days later, that's, that's what we did. So was this contemplated maybe in the weeks or months or, or even years in advance of this? Because, uh, you know, we've heard about the benefits of a four-day work week. Was there a consideration even before the pandemic to do this? Uh, yes and no. So since I the day I founded the company five years ago, we had always had half-day Fridays. So we would leave the office when we were in office company um, at two o'clock. So, you know, we always had some, you know, flexibility there and some, you know, you know, room to have more personal time um, on Fridays. So it was really seamless for us to make Fridays a day off. Um, so we had been doing that for, you know, years at that point. But in terms of being able to benchmark it or learn by example from other companies, we didn't have any of that. So we hadn't been contemplating it. It was more of a, you know, let's make an immediate change. I would suspect that most, if not all, of the employees within your agency are working from home. How do you institute a four-day work week for those who are working remotely? Yeah, so, you know, with change, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, we were all experiencing so much change, you know, as it was. Um, this was a, you know, a really positive change. And so, you know, we hire people who we trust and who work really, really hard. So there was never a 
a moment in time since we implemented this where we had to think, okay, let's make sure that they're working 40 hours, you know, or 30 hours. Like we've never tracked anyone's time. We've always left it up to them to um, manage their time. And we also implemented, you know, time management um, business practices. We've leveraged new technology to make sure that everyone's really efficient from Monday to Thursday. And, you know, we had to really lead by example. So, you know, when you're an employee, um, you know, say someone who's new, especially, there's a round, you know, a fear that that goes into to something like that, where it's like, will they trust that I'm working Monday to Thursday? Like, what if other people are working Fridays and I'm the only one who's not? So my, my COO and I really had to lead by example and make sure that we were offline on Fridays as well. Jamie Savage is the founder of the Leadership Agency, is a guest of ours here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we chat about the four-day work week at that workplace. What was the reaction of your employees when they heard about it? I mean, it was very positive. I, I think they were almost to some degree in disbelief because what we didn't do was ask for anything in exchange. And I think that's the key to success here. And anytime I consult with another business or anyone in my peer group about how we did this and, and how they might be able to do it in their business, you know, I always say, and I'm consistent in this message, is that you can't ask your employees um, for something in return. So what we didn't do is, is deduct their salary and we kept their vacation time three weeks at the exact same amount. So I think for them, they were like, is this really like happening? You know, I get paid the same amount of money and I get to work four days instead of five. So I think there was an amount of disbelief, but it was very positively received. We've got about a minute here. Not all companies can do this, but for those who are contemplating it, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, great question. So my suggestion is to make sure you have the right leadership um, like I said, you know, you have to make sure you lead by example and that the communication strategy um, is really strong. So people need to know when they work for you what's actually expected because they're going to want to know, okay, does that mean I work from 9 to 7 p.m. every day of the, of, like, of the week other than Friday? Like You have to make sure that your leaders are in line. The communication strategy is really effective. And the other is to lead by example. Are you kicking yourself for not doing it sooner? <laughs> yes. And I get asked if I'll ever do if I ever go back to a five day work week and I always say absolutely not. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Jamie, thanks for the time today. Good luck with us. Great. Thank you. Jamie Savage is the founder of the leadership agency going from a five day or probably more as any of you who work in a business setting probably put in a few more hours at night and over the weekend as well. But it sounds like it's working for uh, this company. And uh, if you're contemplating going to that four-day workday route, uh, maybe some advice from Jamie will help you along uh, your journey. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Riggs Amperin on 900 CHML. Halloween is fast approaching, and while children are dreaming about collecting mounds of candy and other treats, we continue to profile some spooky things that make our skin crawl or give us some goosebumps. Today, we welcome Chris Rutkowski to the show. He is Canada's UFO guy. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm pretty good. How about you? I'm okay. Uh, I guess we should begin with how did you become a UFO expert? Well, you know, it goes all the way back to uh, first uh, year of university when a lot of UFO reports were coming into the department, and my profs weren't all that impressed with UFOs, so I thought, well, I would suck, I mean, I would help them uh, by uh, taking the calls from them, and, uh, you know, I started talking with people from one end of the country to the other, and I uh, found you know, it was interesting that, you know, some cases could be explained, others were a little bit weird, and I just sort of built from there. 
So generations of Earthlings uh, have been enthralled with UFOs and the thought of extraterrestrial beings. Why does the infatuation persist? Well, you know, uh, since uh, time immemorial, people have been looking up into the sky and wondering if we're alone or not. And, you know, that's, that's been very persistent. You know, uh, originally uh, our ancestors looked up and thought there were some gods or mythical beings that were moving the stars and planets around. But the big question is, you know, was there anybody out there like us? And, you know, uh, all the science fiction uh, TV series and books and, and uh, movies that we've been looking at, uh, ranging from Star Trek to Star Wars and, and all the Marvel universes, you know, it's all sort of an homage to uh, us trying to understand, are we alone and what happens if they come down here? Yeah, that's a good question. Chris Wartowski is our guest. He's Canada's UFO guy. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Don't forget to subscribe to the GMH podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. Now, I was checking out your social media earlier today, and it looks like you're embarking on a Canadian UFO survey or some kind of investigation. What's going on? Yeah, every year uh, we put out the uh, Canadian UFO survey, which is sort of a uh, uh, collecting all the UFO reports filed in Canada in the course of a year. And uh, we're in the process of coming on the uh, the 21 uh, version. Uh, it's not going to be published, of course, until 22. But, uh, uh, you know, there are probably around a 1,000 cases in Canada every year. And, you know, people are looking up into the sky, and some of them report seeing things that uh, aren't, aren't planes and stars and planets and all those other things. There's There's something else. So does this just document what was uh, seen or reported, or do you do an analysis or investigation of what was seen? Well, you know, this is what has been reported. Uh, so people will file their reports with uh, government agencies, with uh, local um, museums and RCMP and some uh, Canadian Forces bases, and even reporting them online. And we're getting reports uh, on social media itself from uh, across from YouTube and Twitter and uh, uh, Instagram and so forth. So people are wanting to share their experiences, and it's sort of a snapshot of what has been reported. And it goes beyond, um, you know, what we see on, on TV and, and uh, hear about usually, because most of those cases don't make it there. These are the cases that people want to share with other people of like mind. We do some analysis to try and find out whether there's more in uh, you know, Ontario versus Quebec, for example, or, you know, how many reports were of objects that were green versus blue and that type of thing. So we want to understand, are there trends? Uh, what exactly are people seeing? What is the most active area of Canada in terms of UFO reports? Well, it is related to uh, populations. So, uh, you know, the more people around uh, potentially to see a UFO, the more UFO reports we'll get. So mm -hmm. certainly Ontario and, and Quebec and BC are, are the most active, but you know, there's little hot spots from time to time. Nova Scotia uh, has been uh, very active uh, occasionally. Uh, we've had waves in, uh, in Alberta uh, and even Manitoba itself has had some more cases than usual according to population. We're speaking with Chris Wartowski. He is Canada's UFO guy. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Much has been made about UFO sightings in the U.S. Places like Area 51 really grab a lot of headlines. Does Canada have a UFO story to tell, a famous UFO story? Actually, Canada has many classic UFO stories to tell. In fact, the Canadian government has issued uh, so far four um, commemorative coins 
uh, actual legal tender uh, commemorating and acknowledging uh, UFO cases from coast to coast. Uh, the first one was with regard to uh, Falcon Lake, Manitoba from 1957, where a fellow, fellow said he was burned by a flying saucer. Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, where something was seen to uh, crash into the ocean. Uh, and in fact, a coin was just released uh, not that long ago, a matter of weeks, uh, commemorating a, a UFO that was seen and photographed above a Montreal hotel. And, uh, you know, there's there's some classic cases out there uh, that uh, really rival what's been reported in the States, but we tend not to hear about them as much, but uh, maybe that's just being Canadian. <laughs> We're too humble. Chris, really appreciate the we time are. today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.